Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm Jacob Caudill, the undergraduate student for the Gortney Institute. Today, I have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics with me, as well as Dr. Russ McCullough, the Wayne Angel Distinguished Chair of Economics Professor and founder of the Gordy Institute. Okay, well, welcome, listeners. Um, we thought from last week, if you uh, caught that show, uh, looting was brought up, and we thought, uh, I think Justin kind of said, well, we, got a, we should do a whole show on looting, so here it is. We're going to that's been kind of in the limelight, and, and we all uh, know from uh, Scripture, at least Christian Scriptures, uh, the little Ten Commandments. One of those is, Thou shalt not steal. So I think that uh, plays into here, uh, love thy neighbor as yourself. I mean, you could go down the laundry list of things that those aren't exactly Christian activities, what we see has gone on in our various major cities throughout the uh, throughout the nation, and so I, I thought it was a, a good time to kind of talk about that, um, talk about our system and how we've addressed it, how our leaders have, and so we'll kind of look at the faith in that regard today. So, um, Justin, why don't you lead us off? Sure. Uh, I think we should also say it's June 8th today, because these, you know, the situation changes so rapidly. Good point, good um, point, yes, and our podcast makes, usually is on a two-week delay or so. so yeah, yeah, so it makes sense to say where we are when we're saying what we're saying. So, um, yeah, uh, we've seen uh, some of these protests, and uh, it seemed like it was, the worst of it was a few, maybe not even this past weekend, but the weekend before although there were still some echoes of it this last weekend, where we've seen a lot of uh, looting after these protests. And, you know, even though we're assured that, you know, these protests are mostly uh, peaceful, and, you know, when you see they are uh, mostly peaceful, but there's an alarming amount of looting that has gone on. And so one of the things that is very interesting is that in some jurisdictions, it seems like the authorities have pulled back and uh, allowed looting to go on. And our system... Yeah, and not, not, I might add, not really because they were, let's say, understaffed or there was a fear of this or that, but more, it seemed to be the sentiment, and I don't know if this was more media-driven, it's, well, because it's about... George Floyd's death and racism that it's somehow justified, uh, which I think is a difference than compared to like, well, we just, we don't want our police or military getting hurt. And obviously this is way out of control. So let's just let them do it. I, and I think that's an important distinction. That is an important distinction. And it's, it's very unclear how they, that decision was made and they've kind of gone back and forth on why they let the looting happen when they let the looting happen. And, you know, one of the things about our system is that it, it requires a lot of trust and maybe even faith that, you know, our, our economic system requires that you have faith that, you know, the currency will be stable. Right. And it requires faith that 
you will be treated uh, the same under the law, regardless of the color of your skin. And it also requires faith that when you call the cops, the cops will show up and the cops are there to protect uh, your person and your property. And in the case of George Floyd, you know, we saw a horrific, a horrific misuse of force in that the police obviously didn't protect George Floyd's life, right? Yeah. And it was, uh, I, I want to say on the air, I've told some of my family this, I went and looked at the uncut footage. I just wanted to see it for myself. And it was the, one of the most despicable things I've ever seen in my life. It was so disgusting and uh, really shocked that it was allowed to go on the way it was. What, what surprised me that I didn't hear, I guess maybe from the little media blurbs or little cuts that I saw, was the people pleading with the officer, like, get off of him. He, he's done, dude. You're, he, he, one guy was always saying, you're a bum, you're a bum. And he, I think he was trying to be, he would probably like to use a lot more colorful words, but he was trying to respect the officer saying, you know, you're basically the scum of the earth. Why are you still on this guy after he's, he still had two minutes on him when he was clearly passed out, just done. Like they could have easily picked him up and thrown him in a police car or done something else. But truly, truly disgusting, despicable thing. One of the absolutely worst things I've ever seen in my life. It probably was the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. And it really left an impression on me that uh, there's definitely some things to be fixed with the criminal justice system. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll second 100 that, um, you know, every single bit of what you just said. And it's, I mean, not just that officer, right? There were three other officers there watching Absolutely. this happen, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, that I'm, I'm glad that he is being charged. And this happens more than people think that police kill unarmed people and then don't suffer the consequences. Right. Yeah, I um, think so, there's a lot that's come out with the impunity of officers and how many times that stuff can go unchecked and how qualified immunity. Yeah. Yeah. The qualified um, immunity, which sounds like we've got some early signs that maybe there is going to be something done there. Yeah. Well, I would love for us to get some serious police reform and demilitarization of the police out of this. Um, that would be, I think a great, um, yeah, discussion that we had with students was eye opening for me. Uh, I had heard discussions of that before, but to really dig in and read 200 pages worth of stuff and, and really get a sense of it, it seemed pretty clear to me that we've gone a wrong direction. And I, I know there's, there is trade offs, though, either, but I think we're at a point where it's pretty obvious that it's, it's not working and we need to move some other direction. So, yeah. But let's so, get back to, yeah, the faith trust thing of the system, I think, for this episode. Uh, so yeah. uh, let's get back to the looting, which, yeah. so one of the things that I was saying, you know, the police obviously didn't protect Floyd's person, right? right. And then in response, when a few really bad actors in the wake of Floyd's you know, the protest for Floyd decide to burn down sections of Minneapolis and new apartment buildings. Then the police don't respond there either. You know, the mayor pulls back police, they exit their precinct. Uh, one of their whole precincts was burned down. They breached the evidence room. Um, yeah, that's crazy. And so 
it seems very, very weird. You know, if you were a business owner in Minneapolis and you are calling the cops because you, you know, someone is trying to loot your store and the cops don't come, it's very, it would be very, it seems like a weird explanation for the city to say, well, we're not sending cops. You know, why? Well, because one of our employees, a cop, violated the civil rights of. <laughs> of an individual citizen. Therefore, we're going to let some other individual citizens violate your civil rights. Yeah, it's a kind of a balancing act thing almost. Uh, Yeah. Maybe perhaps, or at least in some people's minds. But yeah, crazy. And so I think what you're you're seeing is a complete lack of faith in the police force to do those two things, to protect, you know, individuals' right to life and to protect individuals' property. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess speak a little bit in philosophical type terms here of how important. I, the first thing that came to mind is how how quickly it's hard to build up trust. I think people know this from relationships and other things too, right? It, it takes time, but you can have that trust go away very quickly. And I think that might be some of the longer term damage that's happened here is that things that, well, okay, I've built up a trust that yes, if, if somebody's looting my store, I call the police and they come. Whereas in Guatemala, for instance, that I've done uh, some decent amount of work with, that doesn't happen, right? The, the people have that distrust because of the corruption problems. And, and so I think we can see a lot of that start to evaporate quickly if they're not careful that from the highest ranks of the institutions here in the United States, in, at some levels, they're supporting us turning the other cheek on this for some sort of balancing act. Well, and you can also see what kind of stores didn't get right, didn't get looted, right? And uh, store owners who are armed to the teeth and willing to, you know, stand out there and defend their stores, the looters will just go uh, on to the next store, right? We mm. also saw this in 1992 with the rooftop Koreans and the LA riots. Mm. I forgot about the rooftop deal with the, with the LA riots, but I, re- I remember seeing a documentary or something on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and this was a minority community that already didn't really trust the police. And then uh, the police completely abandoned um, little Korea um, in downtown LA. And so they had to uh, fend for themselves. So they used Korean, uh, you know, um, uh, Radio Korea to organize this kind of defense, and they defended their shops yeah. um, from being looted. And we kind of saw something like that, uh, you know, happening in in um, in places. Um, well, especially in in Minneapolis, you know, it didn't happen in New York City, for instance. Okay, I didn't see that happen. So you saw example. I honestly, I, I've been watching news here or there, but I I, I don't watch typically like the evening news on TV. So I haven't seen all the images that maybe you guys have seen. I usually have been listening to radio or podcasts or something is generally, uh, generally how I get my uh, media. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, what I'm getting at is that, um, you know, a big argument that progressives all often use is that, you know, we only the cops should have guns and, right. um, you know, we need to trust the system. Yeah. And if people don't trust the system, that argument for um, mm. for disarmament is out the window. And it is out the window now. Yeah. I, I think you're right. I, th- I heard I did hear somebody else say that, that the Second Amendment is solid now after this display of 
um, not having the proper support and protection. Uh, Jacob, why don't you uh, talk a little bit about what did you say your mom um, had in terms of property or what, what does she do and what did um, you hear about? For a company called CBRE and they do like, um, they pay like the utilities and the bills and stuff for uh, companies like T-Mobile. Uh-huh. And um, T-Mobile has reportedly, has reported that around 67 stores have been, uh, have suffered severe losses as well as six stores being burned completely down from all of this looting. Wow. Burnt completely down. Yeah. And I suppose the phones and whatnot were looted ahead of time. They broke in and grabbed whatever inventory. Although somebody else said, I don't think that's actually a very good thing to steal the way that they initiate them. Like you won't be able to use it. They'll know that it's a stolen phone. I I Mm -hmm. think I heard somebody say, but nonetheless, yeah. When Apple store was looted, they sent texts to all the stolen phones saying, you need to return this. We know we know where you are. <laughs> Is that right? Uh, yeah. Well, I, one of the things that I think was disturbing was hearing the argument that, uh, well, these, these places are insured. So, you know, it's not really a loss for them. Um, yeah. And that's, first of all, it's not just not true that all these places are insured. Right. Um, and... Uh, when something like that happens to a small company, it's much more devastating than when it happens to, you know, one of 65 um, larger uh, branches. Yeah. Um, and so what, the, you know, another effect of this would be to drive some small firms out of business. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You got a, you know, a deductible or 20%. Some of those insurance policies with a small business could be, we pay 100000 you pay 20000 and 20000 might be enough to tank it you know, pretty easily in, in a lot of small business cases. And even if they are insured and even if they do get the full repayment, that money comes from somewhere, right? This is, this is like the broken window fallacy writ large, right? Yeah. That, um, uh, well, uh, you know, it'll all be replaced. Well, you know, that will consume wealth, wealth that won't be available for, uh, you know, for society to use um, to do anything else. Yeah. And I, I did hear another study where some of the areas that have been hit hard with riots, whether it was LA, maybe even Ferguson or something, but the businesses did not rebound back to where um, to the where they were before. So people, you know, business people look for places where they think their investment's going to be stable for 15, 20 years. I mean, th- their time horizon is out there. And so why would you put your money there when you can go to another community that maybe either doesn't have a history of that happening or whatever. So, well, Hey, this looks like a good spot for our first half to come to a pause. And so what we want to come back with is a little bit more on the faith side, but also the classical liberal. So what's a classical liberal perspective? Um, Our listeners um, maybe don't even have a lot of that distinction. There's the liberals and the conservatives or whatever, but the classical liberal thing is actually quite different. And and I, I want to press Justin on getting his comments on that. So we'll be back here in just a bit. The Gortney Institute is seeking a graduate assistant. Earn your MBA with full tuition by participating in fun and impactful events. For more information, check out the Gortney Institute website. To ask a question for our mailbag, send us an email at info at gortneyinstitute.org or call us at 785-248-2551. 
The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Justin or Russ today. Okay, welcome back. So when I left, I wanted to throw a classical liberal question to Justin. There's a whole history that a lot of people don't quite understand uh, because we use different words. Justin actually used the word progressive, which I think is actually used more now than than maybe even the word liberal, because I think there has been a, a little bit of a resurgence of libertarian and classical liberalism. And so the progressive usually associated more with people as we use the word left or left-leaning versus right and so but uh, the classical liberal thoughts a little bit of an in-betweener because there's some things that aren't always consistent with either the uh, Republican Party or the Democratic Party things like maybe uh, getting involved in international warfare usually uh, libertarian leaning thought would say let's just stay out of conflicts uh, in general, again, libertarian, I hate to use those labels. I don't label myself as a libertarian or a pu- Republican or Democrat. I, I just, I, I am a more conservative thinking guy and I've been more, I'm willing to say libertarian leaning as I've gotten uh, older, um, a respect for uh, individuals to to do what they do, what they want to do as long as they're not hurting somebody else. So anyway, Justin, why don't you educate us a little bit more on this classical liberal idea? You know, classical liberalism it really comes out of a lot of Enlightenment thinking, in particular, you know, John Locke and um, and John Stuart Mill. And the idea is, you know, and, and actually, I got to I got to pause you there because I think I hear the word Enlightenment. And I know when I was starting to understand things like what what does Enlightenment mean. So start with that baby step too, just to just give a little bit on on what. Enlightenment thinking meant exactly coming out of agrarian or something. I, I don't know. You tell me. Everyone likes to claim the Enlightenment for their own set of ideology. <laughs> Which so is, I, is it not too dissimilar from being woke today in 2020? Or, I mean, I think it is uh, quite a bit different because of what was going on. And in, in it maybe give us a time frame of Enlightenment era time frame when people use that word usually. Yeah, I just like to think of it more as a period in time rather than um, any specific set of doctrines. Okay. You know, the Enlightenment era is usually between, like, the late 1600s and the mid-1800s. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the the end of, you know, the medieval period or, you know, the Dark Ages. And right. you see these explosions in in science and technology and this better understanding of the way the world works with, you know, Newtonian mechanics. It really exponentially grew our knowledge, right? And so we were enlightened that, oh, we, we might just be right on the verge of figuring life out. Turns out in 2020, we still don't have life figured out even through these periods of uh, explosive growth or whatnot. 
Yeah, and this idea that you know we can uh, scientifically determine what what we not only how the world works, but uh, what we ought to do, uh-huh. which is of course really ironic because one of the biggest Enlightenment thinkers is David Hume of the Scottish Enlightenment, and one of his most famous points is that no amount of scientific understanding will ever tell you what to do. There's a gap between is and ought that can't be bridged. Uh-huh. Um, so this is why I think it's you know it's it doesn't do us much good to think of the Enlightenment as a series of doctrines or anything, but rather just a period in which, um, you know, a lot of different ideas um, were blooming. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you could say I mean, communism is, you know, a, yeah. a, a, uh, an outgrowth as well. You know? Yeah, definitely an outgrowth of it that, Oh, we can manage things from the top down and kind of make everybody better off by scientifically doing this or that. Yeah. Right. So, and another way to think of it is this idea in, that there's um, the death of authority, right? Mm. Um, so what a, a, a lot of these um, ideas do have in common is, um, you know, this idea that things like, uh, you know, hereditary monarchy. Oh, okay. Um, the kings and queens going away. And... Um, yeah. Uh, they have some special power uh, title to rule. Connection or, to God. Or that tradition has a specific claim on the way we ought to live or uh, how we ought to understand the world. Okay, good. So um, liberalism as a vein of thinking in the Enlightenment was uh, this idea that we ought to make people as free as we can be. That's where, you know, the word comes from, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, liberty. Um, we want people to have as much liberty as possible. And so with that, if the maximization of liberty is your uh, guiding star or the value that you want to maximize, um, that places constraints on what you think the state or the government ought to do. And so a lot, most uh, people who describe themselves as classical liberals today believe in things like um, uh minimal domestic and international state. That is a state that is uh, there to enforce contracts and uh, uh, protect property and protect your person with uh, usually um, a safety net to protect the poor. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's it though. Um, And then they say, and other than that, you know, you should be free um, to live your life as you see fit. And I might add here, this is where I've, I've through the last 10 years, especially found that Christianity is actually about having that liberty. I think um, have the free will and, and the idea that God wants you to freely choose to be a part of that and to kind of meet God halfway. I mean, ultimately, at least from the Missouri Synod Lutheran faith, uh, which is closest to Martin Luther, God chooses you. You don't choose really anything. But nonetheless, with those nuances that you have the freedom to be yourself uh, and to ultimately find your right place, whereas a lot of people perceive Christianity having rules and regulations and, oh, it's restriction and it's going to restrict your freedom. Uh, I don't actually see it that way, especially from the Missouri Synod Lutheran faith. I mean, you really embrace that uh, you are corrupted and corruptible and um, your um, sinful life uh, can be redeemed through Christ. And so I think the early Christian church um, had the benefit of the Romans 
allowing a lot of freedom that the church actually was able to grow quite a bit because they kind of left Christians alone. Um, so anyway, there's just some nuances there. I, I, I know I would get plenty of pushback from that, possibly from other Christian denominations and otherwise, but I see liberty consistent with Christian doctrine rather than antithetical to it is my personal opinion. Yeah. And there's, there's arguments about, you know, uh, you know, forced charity isn't, um, you know, being forced to contribute to charity doesn't do the giver any good, right? You need to be convinced into, you know, wanting to give to charity. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. The Lord loves a cheerful giver, I think is maybe somewhere in Corinthians. I don't know. I'm not much of a Bible quoter, but anyway, that same type of thing that you, you got to truly have that freedom to do it. And so I think some of what our founders who were not necessarily Christians and, uh, or otherwise, um, I think that's kind of written into our code in a lot of ways that, that, that is the way things ought to be. But then it's also written to our code, like, no, let me take control. That's it'd be, your life would be better if I, if I helped you, I know, I know the way, let me, let me design things that way. So there's a lot of tension, both directions. Okay, so um, with the uh, uh, liberalism, I think better defined, um, you know, are we, are we moving that direction here? I wanted to kind of change topic a little bit in getting into the defunding of police um, or, or how is that going to look. So I think, as you mentioned earlier, this, this breakdown in trust of the system has led to outcries of, of defunding the police. And so my wife had asked me, uh, what, what does that mean that we're going to be defunding the police? And, and so um, the police system, I think, will remain um, with, with changes, hopefully, on, on policy and whatnot. But that is all through law, through property taxes is generally how we fund the police. Um, but these side deals, um, uh, Jacob was bringing up uh, malls and uh, maybe some of the commercial properties. Uh, you go to a concert and the concert hall might have hired police officers or used the police um, for off-duty police officers. Some of that might have been just side jobs that they happen to be police officers, but the, the department knew that they were doing that. And some, in some ways, um, uh, Minneapolis just uh, took away uh, community resource officers out of the school system um, I thought it was a pretty pointed uh, thing to say on NPR with the person who's interviewing, like, okay, so when the first school shooting comes out, you know, what, what's going to happen then? I'm sure there's parents that are concerned about uh, that. And what I, what I found interesting was that, uh, God bless America, we do have alternatives to publicly funded things. And so all of these places are free to hire um, private security. So at Ottawa University, for instance, we have the uh, OU campus security. Now, we as a policy don't allow them to carry a gun, but we could. Um, and that's been talked about in the past, especially with school shootings going up. So, you know, should we allow our campus police to carry, to be armed? Um, in the state of Kansas, uh, anybody can carry a gun uh, without a carrying concealed permit. They've never gone through a class or whatever. It's totally legal. Uh, women, you can shove a gun in your purse and walk around even if you've never shot one in your life in the state of Kansas. 
Um, that's the case. Of course, that's a far cry from the law in other places. So state law varies, but I was a little surprised to learn that. I grew up in Minnesota, moved to Iowa, and then I came to Kansas and then that, that law had passed and I asked my neighbor, I'm like, is that for real? He took me to a shooting range, one of the first indoor ranges I've ever been to. And um, he said, yep, yeah, that's, that's what it is. You don't have to go to a class. And I wasn't even sure how I felt about that. But, but uh, I think uh, having people armed has taken on a new light from this looting and stuff. And so, Justin, I, I you want to jump in there and see if uh, what else you have to comment on? Yeah, so on the defunding the police, um, that has been a huge rallying cry lately. And um, I'm a little bit conflicted about it because as somebody who's been, you know, advocating for demilitarizing the police and for, <laughs> uh, you know, police reform for a long time, um, then I hear people saying defund the police. And, uh, and then when I mean, there are people who say we can defund the police, that doesn't mean we have to fire any police officers or reduce their pay. It just means we uh, move resources into other areas. And that doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, are you going to um, make people who used to be police officers be kind of community representatives or something like that? Mm -hmm. um, anywhere you move money, you are moving it from one area to another. And um, it seems a bit like uh, that proposal that they're putting forward is kind of like, you know, Schrodinger's proposal where uh, what they mean by it depends on how it's accepted. Uh, you know, and, and they say, <laughs> defund the defund the police and you go you can't just defund the police and eliminate the police department and then they go oh well <laughs> yeah. what i meant by defund the police was demilitarize the police <laughs> right. and i say well then why didn't you just say demilitarize the police yeah um huge difference yeah 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 and so if, if that's some of the nuances that are getting overlooked uh, that's something that needs to be corrected right away because it, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And the second thing, though, is that, um, you know, a lot, if you go, a lot of very poor communities, their complaint with the police is that they are under-policed. Um, mm -hmm. So I read a, you know, a comment from somebody who was talking about Vallejo, California, which is uh, poor um, and it's, uh, you know, uh, very um you know, it's, it's almost all minority. Um, and they said, look, if you go to the Vallejo city council meeting, it is parents complaining that there is no police presence. And there's, that's why their neighborhoods are so violent. Mm. Um, and so I think similar in Chicago too, right. With the, the police won't go into certain neighborhoods because it's either so violent or whatever the case is. I would yeah, it was either yesterday or the day before, which was the most violent day in Chicago's history in 60 years. Um, 19 homicides, I think, or 18. So yeah. um, there are some trade-offs that are going, you know, that we're going to have to talk about here. And I, I think there's this kind of presumption that, um, you know, the, you know, certain populations in the United States are kind of univocal and that they all want the same thing. And that's mm -hmm. not the case. We are hearing from, um, you know, one, one portion of society right now. Um, you know, well, that, that's a great point with the approach we 
tend to have even like COVID for instance, um, my wife and I were just looking over some of the statistics. And so uh, Kansas is at eight deaths per 100,000 people and flu and what was it? Flu and something else were uh, double that, more than double that, 17. My point is that when we have these one size fits all, we've talked about this on other podcasts that it doesn't really make sense. And so I thought I hear you kind of saying there that the policing decision too is probably something that's a local decision given local information on how and what that looks like. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if we get some police reform out of this, I'd be really happy if we get a one size federalized, uh, you know, uh, one size fits all federal police force out of this, I'm not going to be happy because no. I don't think that, um, you know, uh, what works in DC works in, um, you know, Ottawa, Kansas. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And I, I hope these, this crisis situation, whether it's COVID or the, this, um, the rioting and looting and, and um, George Floyd situation helps bring to people's attention that, there's so many localized things. And part of what makes America great, what it was founded on was having decentralized power, um, neighborhoods that allow people to move from place to place. If they're not happy where they are, um, they can move to a different place. Again, given, um, you know, people's incomes or otherwise that, 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 that might be difficult to do, but, but people do do it. I, I don't think enough comes out that, you know, people think they're trapped or they have a right to stay in their hometown, that their hometown that's uh, ravaged by uh, poverty, whether that's somewhere in rural Kansas, um, that's a small town that's dying due to economic reasons, or whether that's due to violence in the inner city, um, people do move and they can move. And um, it, it might be tough and it might seem impossible at the time, but I, I think people are more resilient than that. And I I, I hope that there's a recognition that what we have doesn't need to be thrown in the toilet for some sort of socialist, Marxist, communist, centrally planned system would somehow get us to a better place uh, because the evidence is apparent everywhere that that's not true. And so I hope we have enough knowledge information from uh, people like you and I putting it into young minds and other places that, that we wouldn't try to overturn the system. Surely some of the media sounds like overturning is the, the thing to do. Our system is broken and we, it's irredeemable and it's, um, you know, whatever. Um, and I, I don't see it that way. Well, I mean, also, uh, you know, America, this is jumping onto what you just said. America is not supposed to be, one giant social experiment. It's supposed to be a bunch of social experiments. Organic. Yeah, it's supposed to be decentralized. Yeah. Um, and that way, if one fails, it doesn't take down the whole system, right? Exactly. It, it's fine to have a couple socialist communist regimes up in the mountains of Colorado or whatever that already have failed. I'm, I'm kind of bringing up something that I've seen on documentaries or something. None of those little communes, communities have ever really panned out in the long haul, but God bless them. We have the right to do that. That's the beauty of it. I mean, just, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, in my, in my libertarian-ish paradise, right, you can run a socialist convent, right? Yeah. But in the socialist paradise, I can't run a libertarian one. 
Right. And I run a little socialist regime here at my house here. Um, yeah, we all do. Um, I had one defector leave already. My son just went back to Valparaiso College uh, or university, and I, he's entering a senior year, and I suspect he's not coming back. So apparently he didn't like the socialist regime, communist regime of Russ McCullough, the dictator Russ here in the household. But Yeah, we need I, to permit exit when dictators become uh, <laughs> maniacal. That's right. <laughs> That must be where I was at, apparently. <laughs> All right. Well, that looks like a good place to wrap, unless uh, you got any final comments, Justin? Or I don't think so. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, this has been a production of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University. Appreciate you all listening. And so um, if you're able to do one of those five-star reviews, we'd sure appreciate it to get our word out there to other people that might enjoy hearing what you're listening to today. So we try to do that each week and uh, hope you can continue to support us. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks. <laughs>